YouTube series has been designed for you to hear other people's experiences who have persevered in the most dire circumstances. I'm using HOPE as an acronym here to help you get inspired to keep going because I don't want you to give up. The stories you will listen to are told firsthand by people who have faced some incredibly frightful challenges and kept moving forward despite it all. You'll hear honest accounts of their physical, mental, and emotional states. They'll share advice on what to do and what not to do should you or a loved one find yourself in a similar situation. They'll want you to laugh with them. And most importantly, they'll share tips for building resiliency and how they got the strength to do it all. Today's chat is about cancer journeys, how they compare, and what to do when someone you love has been given a diagnosis. My guest is breast cancer survivor Jane Burt Hildebrandt, and she is very grateful for every day on this beautiful little blue planet, as she says. Her mantra is be the light, and this chat is particularly special to me because Jane and I went to high school together, and when I was going through my journey, we were a nice support for each other. She's a light of inspiration to all, and one glance at her Instagram page proves it. You can find her at Go, and that's S-E-A, Jane Go, 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 because Jane is a resident of Cape Cod, and she's an ocean lover. There is nothing this woman won't challenge. I'm so inspired by her and her endless supply of energy that I wanted her story to be shared for all those who are currently experiencing their own journey through cancer. According to the American Cancer Society, that's a whole lot of people, over 1.9 million people, and that's just in the United States alone. That's the equivalent of 5,370 cases each day. Jane received her diagnosis at 40 during her first mammogram. She had no idea, and she felt nothing. But what Jane did was turn every situation that she could into a celebration of sorts. She admits she cried every day for six weeks, and somehow she found it within herself to move forward each day and make the best of a not-so-great situation. So listen in. We're having this conversation because we've had similar journeys, right? Um, It's been 14 years, I think, for you since you were diagnosed. 15. This year's 15. It is 15. Good for you. Good for you. So then it's that's going to make this year 16 for me. And I still have people coming to me saying, I gave my friend or my family member your number your I shared your podcast, I shared your website link, whatever it whatever it is, they're still coming to me saying, and I'm I'm hoping you can help them. I'm hoping they'll find some comfort in that for you, for, you know, from you. And as soon as I hear that, I automatically want to just download everything that I know and every tip and trick that worked for me, that worked for people that I know, like right into them so they have it. But you can't, right? It's everybody has a different diagnosis. Everybody's journey is different. But I just want so badly to make their journey bearable for them. What's that like for you? I'm sure people come to you as well. It's the same. Um, I dream of a world where no one has to come to me. <laughs> it kills me every time I hear it. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I think about wh- where I was. You know, I had just turned 40. It was my first mammogram. When I got the phone call from the hospital, I truly, my first thought was, is they screwed up the billing. It didn't even occur to me <laughs> that they were calling me back um, to tell me to come in. And, but I knew no one at that time in my life. I had no one who had been through breast cancer. It wasn't in my family. Um, I knew of a coworker who I didn't really know, but I'd heard anecdotally that she had had breast cancer. And so I called her just to ask, and that woman forever, I will be grateful to. She really literally did what I try to do now and pass it forward and shared with me everything she learned. I ended up using her surgeon. I went to the same hospital in Manhattan as her. I mean, and I 
So when people come to me, I try to do the same. It's not, it's so scary to go through hearing that word cancer. And I just want them one to know here I am 15 years later, you know, it's all good. (laughs) There is life after this. Um, But I'm also sometimes very real, like it's going to suck and it's okay to feel bad and it's okay to cry. I cried. I think I cried every day for like six weeks. Like I just couldn't believe like this was about to happen to me. Um, But then I had my village and I get through it. And I, the first piece of advice I give people is don't read the internet. Like, <laughs> you know? um, but yeah, it's to say, I just, I do. I just want to let them know it's going to be okay, but you know, share with them my story and the story of so many others that I've met through this journey, yes. um, sadly. Right. But on the flip side, they're all doing it. You know, there's positive and negative outcomes of stories that I have, but you know, the ne- not I shouldn't say negative, but the stories of those who you know perhaps lost the battle, they went out fighting and and they made their own decisions, which is which are stories into themselves. So, yeah, and that's important to know. I love I I love that because you're reminding me of just this past holiday season when I I again 15 years, but still not a holiday passes where I don't deliver treats to the doctors. So I had two sets of teams. I had my radiation oncology team and I had my oncology team. And um, we had a snow day one day because of where I teach, we get a lot of snow. So we had a snow day one day and where my hospital is, there was no snow. So I said, I can deliver my treats today. And when I walked into my doctor's office, it was packed. It was packed. And I walked in and and everybody was looking at me and I've got a bottle of homemade Irish cream and a big tray of um, a big tray of crumb cake. And they're all looking at me and their eyes got like really big when I walked in and the ladies let me in and bring it around the back. And when I came out, I just felt so compelled to turn around to everybody and I put my hand on the door. And because, you know, you have that little dialogue with yourself. I'm like, oh, no, just just go. Don't, don't don't say anything. I'm like, no, no. I turned around and I just looked at everyone and I said, be well, everybody. I said, this was me 15 years ago. I was here, too. I said, you're going to be well. And everyone looked like their eyebrows went up, their faces lit up. And at this one little woman just looked at me and she said, God bless you. And I said, God bless you too. I just felt like I couldn't leave without saying something, some kind of words of encouragement to them. Yeah. It makes a difference. It makes it, it makes a big difference. And, um, you know, I do see myself well. I don't, feel like my journey's done and I'd love to know how you feel about that because I do see myself well I see myself healed from cancer but for me the healing is perpetual it's every thought it's every choice every meal um I don't obsess about it I'm not obsessive about it but um I'm definitely I definitely think about you know, each move, it's, it's much more intentional, much more purposeful. How about you? Yeah, I I guess I, I try to live with intent, I guess is how I look at it. And part of that is keeping my body healthy. Um, my, my newest thing is, is also really embracing mindfulness. Um, so much so my employer actually sponsored the, um, the Brown University training class and I was applied and I got in and completed it. And I'm trying to bring mindfulness through my teams at work and and share that through my organization. And I don't know that I would have taken the same path. I mean, I was always into, I was into running before I got sick and, um, and I always credit exercise with me getting through my treatments so easily because I was able to keep my body moving. And I did a lot of research and reading around the mind body connection at that time. Um, first of all, trying to figure out why the heck I got cancer, <laughs> but you know how to get through it. And really that helped me regain control of my body. You know, it was the one thing I was like, I had to- one thing you think you have total autonomy over and <laughs> it's a real slap in the face when you get cancer because you realize you don't. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that has led me to really 
embrace my body and live a life of intent to make the best of it that I can. That doesn't mean I always, you know, uh, make all the right choices, right? I do like a good glass of wine and some cheese. But (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you still still, want to move forward living your best life, right? Yes, but I also, and I I sometimes tell people, like, I'm sure they're tired of hearing me say it, but I am very public in, in my discourse around living mindfully or living healthy and bringing it back to having cancer and because I want people to understand one I, I truly think cancer has profound impact on people in so many different ways um but to the power that it can bring to someone to help affect change not only in themselves but in others um and so if and I always said if I help just one person mm-hmm. then I don't consider my journey complete, but I feel, I feel complete if that makes sense. (laughs) No, it does. Absolutely. And people can definitely feel like they have loss of control out of their body, of their body when they get that diagnosis. But we do still have control of what we're going to do with it, the choices that we're going to make and how we're going to move forward with everything that you just said. And you are like a machine. You've you've got boundless energy. You're running half marathons and 5Ks and, you know, not just running 5Ks, but you're dressing for the occasion and you're themed and you're a mermaid and you're Santa Claus and you're Batgirl and it's rain. The weather doesn't stop you. It's rain. It's snow. It's heat. Um, I know that I passed you one day in the summertime on a super hot day. Um, no, I didn't pass you. I think Steve passed you on his bike. And oh, when I did the race up in Wellfleet. Yeah. Yes, yes. And he said, I think I just saw Jane. I said, well, was she just like a mermaid? He's like, yeah. I said, that was Jane. And, uh, <laughs> and I said, and, and meanwhile, I'm inside in the air. Like, I'm, and I'm thinking like, not ready to go to the beach yet because it was too hot for me. And here you are. And I don't know if you still belong to your roller derby team and your weightlifting. You don't stop. And it's so inspiring because I've, I've got to change my narrative. I'm slowly starting to change my narrative because the story that I was telling myself and I, I am starting to change the story slowly but it was really that my body has been pushed so far that I don't want to push it anymore I the exercises that I like to do are much more restorative but as I get older I also want to make sure that I'm staying firm and toned and so I'll bring in a couple of of weights here and there and yoga is fantastic for for resistance when i look at you i say i could probably be doing a little bit more (laughs) (laughs) that is that i like running is my my time when i can be in my own head you know that is i don't run for time for time um i really run just to clear my head like i can i think can think through any and everything that's going on and it just helps me i always tell people you my my husband would definitely agree you know i'm not a nice person if i don't move my body in the morning by the end of the day i'm pretty irritable i just i need that time to get it straight what's going on for the day (laughs) and yeah and you that's what yoga does for me yoga really does it truly does align my body and my mind and i it doesn't allow me to think about anything else other than what i am doing in the moment and that's what mindfulness is all about right it just anchors us right to that moment so i just really i i'm the same way you know if i could be walking around and steve will steve will say think you need to do a little yoga (laughs) yeah "Yeah, i think you're right i think i better go do something yeah I'd recently read that the American Cancer Society recommends women at average risk of breast cancer begin their annual screenings at age 45 and switch to every other year at age 55. But the United States Preventative Services Task Force recommends women get mammograms only every two years between the ages of 50 and 74. 
Well, you know, I'm not a doctor and I'm not a diagnostician. I am in no way giving any medical advice here. I'm a woman who is mindful and who listens to and trusts the intelligence of my body. And I pair that with my doctor's recommendations and what feels right for me. So keep listening to what Jane and I have to say about this. I love how every time you're getting ready for your mammogram, you post that picture. I love that you actually took a, had somebody take a picture of you as you were getting ready for your, by that mammogram machine. It's a really, it's a really powerful picture and you're good at posting it every year to remind people to do that. Um, I read, and I even had this conversation with my doctor that they're suggesting mammograms every two years now. And I'm certainly not a diagnostician and I'm not giving anybody advice, but because I had had so much radiation, I thought I had external radiation and internal radiation. And I thought my body could probably use a break for some radiation. Maybe maybe I'll just do my mammogram every other year. Because, you know, I'm so wise now, I can start to make (laughs) those kind of decisions, those kind of medical decisions for my body. And I had that conversation with my doctor and his, uh, just from his eyes. And, and as I'm talking, he's like (laughs) shaking his head left to right. He said, no, you'll continue getting your mammograms every year. So is that what you do as well? Do you go every year? I do. I do. I, uh, and I need to tell you the story about that picture, actually. Um, That was done by uh the photographer for susan coleman in new york city i i don't remember how i even they were looking for people who had been through breast cancer i can't remember what the call was for but you they asked you how you wanted your picture taken i guess it was a survivor a survivor of the month kind of thing and that was my request to have my picture taken with the mammogram machine because it saved my life that's what i said (laughs) it was like you and your superhero or something and the and the people I, I asked the hospital, I had my services at, at NYU, and they thought it was the funniest thing ever that I was requesting to have this picture that went out on Pullman's website <laughs> of me hugging the mammogram machine. But I, I did want to, for that reason, know I would have it to show people because I know so many women who don't go. Um, and that, that guideline that you talk about, like every two years, even I think about when they talked about pushing the age limit back to 50, I, I would have been dead or, you know, or stage four. I was already stage two by the time they found it. Right. And I couldn't even feel it. So, um, yeah, I'm a, not a big proponent of changing the guidelines. And, and I do try to go every year. COVID kind of threw off my calendar. Um, I had been even coming back to New York every year from Massachusetts. Uh, it became a, mom daughter day for my mom and I um we'd go in the city we'd have lunch and go have my mammogram <laughs> um but with covid i started having them up here and now my schedule's way off it used to be every april and now i think i'm like december i had a level of comfort there like those are the people who got me through the bad time and and if gosh if something is is to come or they saw something else like i wanted to be there like immediately like okay i'm i'm already in the place i need to be kind of thing um i do think here if something was to be seen i'd probably end up going uh, up to boston um to dana farber or something like that actually i was running this morning with one of my running partners um she just hit five years out from breast cancer and she went to dana farber so we were talking comparing notes around the hospitals we used so i have a friend who drives from new jersey to dana farber oh wow yeah yeah. Yep. She loves yep. it. She loves her doctors there. And I think the comfort level is really key. If it doesn't feel right, that's one of the messages that I would love for everybody to really hear. If it doesn't feel right, you have a choice. Go to another doctor. Go to another doctor where it does feel right and it does feel comfortable for you. For sure. For sure. I mean, I had my initial mammogram at a local New Jersey hospital and they referred, like I said, I didn't know anyone. They referred me to a surgeon in, near where I lived at the time. And his immediate response was to do a mastectomy. And I was like, mm. but he said, no, you can get a second opinion. Go, you know, go to Sloan in the city. Um, Sloan was like, going to be like four weeks for me to get an appointment. Um, so I did go to 
uh, two other hospitals in Manhattan, but the coworker that I had gotten in touch with meantime had given me her doctors. Um, and I had a posse with me as I did this in the city. Like I had my mom and my stepdad and my husband and his parents with literally with me. And we went from hospital to hospital. And the last stop we made was at NYU. And I met the surgeon and he stayed with us for an hour. It was like five o'clock in the evening and he stayed with us for an hour. And I, I had also met the oncologist that day. And she, at the end of our interview, hugged me and said, you know, even if you don't decide to work with me, you know, I wish you well. I was like, this is my, this is my oncologist. Like I just knew. And that surgeon, I said to anyone, anyone could take an hour with my two sets of parents. Like this is the guy, (laughs) but I just knew, I just, they were the, just that, yes, that connection. And I didn't have it with the other surgeons and oncologists we met with. So. It's, it is so important. And to, to self-advocate, like, I can't preach that enough. Like, trust that voice, trust that inner voice, you know, doesn't matter if the world says it's the best of the best, if it's not the best for you. Yeah, that's so true. And I got chills listening to that story when you were saying that the doctor spent an hour with you. And my my doctors gave me their, I had their cell phone numbers. And never once did I even consider what time it was when I called them. And of course, I would—I didn't. I seldom called, but it was—it was definitely needed when I did call. And every single time they picked up on the first ring, on the first ring they picked up, and never was there any kind of tone in their voice other than caring and compassion and how they could get me to be more comfortable. So important. And I know for myself, you know, you say you got to trust your gut there. It is so true because the only time I've ever gone wrong is when I ignored my gut. Anytime I ignored my gut and I went in a different direction just because of what you said, other people say it's better. And, you know, what's the popular opinion? No, it's what's the what's right for you, not for everybody else. You talk about comfort level. And it's not just comfort level in your doctors, but it's also comfort level in the people that you, that surround you, right? Because I remember Steve drove me to, I had a, um, I had radiation every day. So I had to go every day, 1115 and Steve drove me down and there were sometimes he couldn't. And, um, you know, I would have other people drive me down. I was so blessed, you know, we're blessed to, to have that posse of people, like you say, yeah. But I really just wanted Steve. I didn't want anybody else. And because we didn't have to talk, he didn't ask me questions. I didn't have to listen to any stories. I I could barely sit up and I was leaning, you know, I was just like leaning on the door of the car, my head like cold on the window, right? Because it was like <laughs> the fall. And I'm just looking, I'm just looking, I'm watching, I'm watching, I'm looking at, you know, I, I you just create this story where I, I remember so vividly seeing landscapers working in a yard. And I remember thinking, you have no idea how lucky you are that you could rake right now. Like I would mm. do anything to rake. I couldn't even walk to the bottom of my driveway to get, to bring in the garbage can. Like it, and I remember when I could walk to the bottom of the driveway to get the garbage. I'm like, oh my god, look at this. this is fantastic! But the comfort level in who we surround ourselves is super important. You tell a story that I'd love to know a little bit more about because you were saying, you know, absolutely no room for negativity, and you had said that you had no problem putting people in their place if they were negative. Can you share what that may have sounded like or or what that was like? Because at that time, I could never do it to the person. I would say to Steve, you got to take care of that. (laughs) Please, please take, please take care of that for me. Yeah. I mean, it's funny. It sounds like I even said I I cried every day, you know, for six weeks. I never really thought about dying. Right. I just, I just didn't. It just. I don't know. I don't know why it just was like, okay, well, we're going to do this and we're going to move on. Um, But it's shocking how many people have to tell you about the people that they know who did die from the same exact thing you have. And so it's just like, so part of that to me was like, uh, if I heard that coming or I, it was, of course, people don't know 
always know how to one articulate loss and it's hard to talk about and you know, perhaps it was someone they loved who they lost to cancer and so that that's hard for everybody of course but they also don't know how to talk to someone dealing with it currently and and because we don't talk about it enough and so i'm glad you're doing this podcast we do need to talk about these things as a society um but i would just come out and say it like for, I guess more so my face would probably be shocked, right? But I'd be like, okay, well, that's not going to be me. And I'm trying to maintain a very positive outlook through this. So I don't want to talk about those kind of outcomes, right? And they'd be very apologetic, but it's like, I had to say it. And, and it was, some of those people like that I love, like I just couldn't believe it. And I thought they were being helpful, right? They Because they don't want you to end up that way. Um, but it, it's, it's helping to shift, shift the mindset. You know, it's like, you, you, it's not helpful, but at least it wasn't for me to hear about the bad things I needed to, I needed to hear of the good things. And if I didn't self-advocate for that, even in, even at that level, just what I was hearing, um, I think I, I it would have, I would have gone the opposite. Like, I, I feel like because I was an advocate for light, like I was able to maintain that outlook. Um, and because I saw a lot of people go dark really horribly um, that I felt awful for. There were women who, my oncologist had a private chemo suite and there were, could be three of us in it at a time. And I mean, I met women who were going through the same thing as me alone, totally alone, whose husbands left them because they couldn't deal with the diagnosis. Or, you know, the disfigurement, um, you know, some of these women had some you know pretty horrific surgeries, right? So they got dark really fast because they were getting that very toxic energy from the people that they love the most in this world. But I also saw some stories of triumph from that, you know, women who were going through it alone, but had a very different attitude about it, who, you know, cut that mother-in-law, you know, out of their life because she was talking about, you know, were they preparing for their, you know, a future in their, for their children without them? And the woman's like, what are you talking? Like, how could you even talk? About? Like, yeah, yeah, perhaps that's between my husband and myself. You have those, but really? So, um, no, I think it's, it's so important to, to put yourself first. Right. And no one's going to ask for you. Although like to your point, asking Steve, there were times when Greg would he got to the point where he knew like to just act proactively, <laughs> but yeah, just, just had to call it out. And I still try to do that. Right. It's like, if I hear, if I know someone's going through something and you get that person who thinks they're doing the right thing, I try to steer the conversation away from where I think it's going because I don't want that person to hear a negative story. Yeah. Our language is so important. And I really work hard to teach adults and children how important the language is. I mean, even when you say something in jest, like your language is just so important because our thoughts become things, right? It's all about your belief is your biology. And I, I remember saying to the doctor, my, you know, my first trip back once it was all done. And I, I just sat across from him like a little kid and I'm like look I'm well I did everything that you said and look at me I'm fine and he just looked at me and and he was really serious and I was thanking him I'm like thank you thank you thank you thank you so much for all of this you were just so wonderful and he looked at me and he said Jen you don't get it he said this was all you he said this was all you and it was your attitude and he said, I, he said, I'm, I'm sorry to tell you that I deal with this every day. Like every day I can have two people with the same diagnosis. One is going to come out on top and based on the way the other one handles it, they may have a, a very negative outcome, but the chances were the same and the, the, the survival rate was the same. But because of the stories that they told themselves and the places that they went, it, it did not fare well for them. And I was just so shocked by that. That was my first realization 
because like you, like it was, it was very matter of fact, my mom had breast cancer before me. Um, actually my, my, mine wasn't breast cancer. Mine was cervical cancer, but my mom had breast cancer before my diagnosis. And she was very matter of fact about it. And hers was more hormonal. So it wasn't a hereditary thing, but it was very matter of fact. This is when, when she told us it was, this is what I have. These are how many treatments I have to have. I'm going to get through each one. And then when I'm done, I'm going to have surgery. And then we're going to put this behind us and we're going to keep moving forward. And so we all said, okay. (laughs) And then, okay, (laughs) okay. So that's what we're doing here. And it was just one treatment after the other. And that's exactly what happened. What advice would you give to people then, Jane, who have, it's not their diagnosis. It's the diagnosis of a loved one. Like you said, it's a very uncomfortable time. It's very awkward around that. I know my brother-in-law, you know, you knew my brother-in-law well also. He lost a lot of friends during his journey just simply because people didn't know what to do. People didn't know what to say. So what could people do? What could people say that are listening? Do you have any advice for them? I do. I I or maybe she, maybe what not to do even yeah, what not to do well well what not to do is is stop being there I guess it's funny a woman that I currently work with finished her journey and I had reached out to her to congratulate her and she had said to me what was you know the biggest shock to me about when I finished my treatment and I said well this is going to sound kind of weird but I realized that suddenly it wasn't wasn't all about me. And I had to get used to that. And I said, whoa, that sounded really shallow. But it was, um, it was that people that were, made sure I was okay. Right. And then life goes on and it was like, oh yeah, it took me a minute. Like life is going on. Right. And that's a good thing. Um, but they never really left. Right. So they, they, people still check in, but they thought, okay, I got through and they took what I, you know, ask took my lead like I was going on. And so, and I think that's my advice, like let that person lead. Um, sometimes it's okay to just sit there and say nothing just so that they know you're there. Um, and sometimes it's okay to let them scream at you or, you know, throw things at you and my husband will attest to that (laughs) but it's like you know sometimes they just some people just need an outlet and and I I mean I still to this day I I remember my mom saying to me you know what can I do to make this better and I was not in a good mood that day I I don't know if I wasn't feeling good or I just had treatment or something and I said to her and I it just kills me that I even said this to my mother but I said to her well, then make this go away, you know, like kind of like, and she's like, well, that's the one thing I can't do. And it breaks my heart that I said that to her, but, you know, it didn't mean she stopped sitting next to me. You know, she understood what I was going through. And I think you have to understand that the person who's going through the battle, it's a lo- it's a battle on so many levels and um, they may not know how to ask for what they need, but sometimes you have to let them and not assume that they're going to want either the extra attention or, you know, someone, someone you heard someone got, had some kind of food. And so you're bringing that. And although that was always appreciated, like some things I couldn't eat. And so if people didn't ask and they brought something, I'd be like, wow, spicy, whatever. I'm like, I, you know, I'm going through chemo, right? Like they just didn't think, but you know, it's, I had to, I learned, you know, it's the gesture. It wasn't, wasn't they did it intentionally like to screw with me right it's like um and so that too like um i think it's okay to just do what you can but i also think sometimes it's okay to let the person be but let them know you're there you know and and don't take offense to if they're not feeling up to seeing you or if they're up to seeing you that they don't want to do anything just getting i was my team, like our motto is get comfortable with the uncomfortable. And this is a huge one of those in life. Get comfortable with the uncomfortable because it's uncomfortable on a lot of levels. Yeah. My sister was such a great caretaker. 
she would just stay downstairs. I would never even know she was there. And every now and then she would just come up because I was in, I was in bed. I couldn't, I couldn't get out of bed. So she, every now and then she would come in and she would just peek her head in, not say a word, just, just peek her head in. And if I didn't need anything, I just kept sleeping. And otherwise I might just open up my eye and say, Gatorade, please, or <laughs> water, or could you help me to the bathroom? And that, and that, and still she didn't say anything. She just came over and she got me. She'd like, she did like, even if she was getting me a drink or even if she brought me something to eat, she never said anything because I think something else people don't realize when you're going through treatments. And I'd love to talk to you about your, your treatment and how you responded to that. What other people don't realize when someone is going through treatments is that uh, for me, it heightened all of my senses. My smelling heightened my hearing and, and that did not go away. My students think that I definitely have superpowers and I really think that I've been given them for hearing. I could, <laughs> I, let me tell you something. I could hear things that I shouldn't be able to hear. I could, I can, I can, I can hear it. I can hear it all. And, um, you know, I, I even remember being in, in the hospital and I would, I'd be under the covers with my arms over my ears because like three doors down, the person that was cleaning out the room, you know, they're, they're opening up the plastic bag for the garbage can. And it sounded, it was, it was awful. It was just awful. So when your eyes hurt, I couldn't read. I lost, I couldn't even read. Yeah. Steve had to read and I signed kind of, I, you know, I just got the pen on the paper, but Steve read, read everything to me. I couldn't read. And I, and my hearing was so acute and my sound. So when you've got people that just let you know they're there and you don't have to answer, you don't have to listen, you don't have to say, you don't have to hear. It's so comforting. It's really comforting. And you can come, like people can come in and just say, I'm here. I'm coming over. I'm coming over. My mother was like a bulldog. Like she wouldn't even let anybody in the house. They, and if <laughs> And if they did get in the house, she... The hand sanitizer, shoes come off, you know, the whole thing. But, um, you know, start cleaning their house, take their mail, sort their mail, like do things that you would do in your own home, but do it for them so that they don't have to wash their dishes. Just take, do something to take a, take the load off. How did you respond to your treatment? Everybody, everybody gets a different cocktail of something, right? Yeah. So I had a pretty a common um, mix. I had adromycin, cytoxin, and taxol with adromycin first. So that was the first, I'm trying to think, I went every two weeks for six rounds. Yeah, I think that's, and then it was weekly for like four months after that. <laughs> it's a lot. It's a lot. Um, the adromycin is the one that made me lose my hair and made me actually feel probably the worst. It's the one they call the red devil um, because it is red in the IV bag. Um, I lost my sense of taste. Um, I had a head shaving party to deal with the hair loss. <laughs> Turned it into something fun. I actually kind of liked the crew cut look there for a while. Um, it, I never... I never got, um, I never like vomited or anything like that. And I, I did keep, when I couldn't run, I walked. I had a, a running partner at the time who she was so good. Um, I just kept my body moving. I, I had felt like I had to do that, but there were days of utter exhaustion. Um, I, I can't replicate it. Like I, I, oh my! I've never had children. All my friends who have kids are like, well, if you're pregnant, you would understand the exhaustion. It's kind of that's what I would compare it to. But it was just that deep exhaustion and no desire to eat is kind of what happened to me. Um, I'm one of those ones who ended up losing weight because I couldn't eat anything. Really incredibly sensitive to touch, even in my feet. Um, but that seemed to go away after a while. Um, and sleeping. So I was 40. It, chemo put me into menopause. Um, that's, that's a whole different podcast, but um, it never, I never, it never came back. Um, so I went into menopause at 40. 
Um, so, you know, chemically induced and stayed that way. So that was another level because I was going through night sweats and all of that at the same time. Um, and then, so after, I mean, really like that's through chemo, it was just exhaustion. I mean, there were days where I would just come home and I was good the day of infusion for me. It was not even the next day. It was like the third day. Like I was, I, I worked through the whole time I had treatment, um, but I would work from home. But on that third day I was out, like I was off uh, typically sleeping. Um, and then I, I had radiation afterwards and I actually was in a study. I, and part of the reason I chose NYU as a teaching hospital, aside from loving my surgeon, I called Dr. You know, McDreamy at the time. <laughs> and, um, I love the thought that there had to make, like I said, silver linings from everything. And if I help one person, so I thought, okay, teaching hospital, right. Um, so they were any study I could get in. Um, I was in, so I was in a couple of drug studies, but I always got placebo. Um, but the radiation therapy I was in, I actually did only three weeks of, um, high, high intensity beam radiation. And I had the first appointment in the morning at seven 30 and I drove myself into Manhattan every day and then drove to work. <laughs> um, yeah. And I still don't know how I did that. I said, how, number one, how did I drive to New York City every day? <laughs> um, but I had, I did have a break. I had a break between chemo and um, I finished chemo, I want to say in August. And I didn't start radiation until October. And I, it's funny, we were talking about bringing the stuff in i i remember i had radiation on halloween so i had brought uh i made um banana muffins for <laughs> or pumpkin sorry why did i say banana pumpkin muffins it was halloween and brought them in to the radiation team and they thought that was very funny um but the radiation i had no issues with i don't know if it was because of the shorter duration and the higher intensity um hence the uh, study i was in um, I didn't even really have any skin issues, um, a little bit of redness, um, but n n nothing, you know, you wouldn't even, if you looked at my skin, you wouldn't even have known that I was having radiation aside from my lovely tattoos that I now have, <laughs> like those little dots everywhere. Um, <laughs> it did, I would say by the third week I was tired, but I didn't know if it was really the emotional toll of driving to the city every day um or you know the combined effects of <laughs> being strapped to a gurney and you know they close that big iron door and everybody leaves and they're talking to you through a microphone and that's stressful yes. <laughs> in itself. and everything um, is white everything is white everything is so sterile i actually felt like um on willy wonka and the chocolate factory like that scene with mike tv yeah <laughs> right yeah. that's what that's what i that's what i felt like yeah, yeah, I know. It's very odd. That, that first time I admit, like, I was almost into, like, panic mode. Like, get me out of this room kind of thing. And then she comes on and talk. It was just bizarro. Um, but, no, I, I actually felt okay. Um, I look back at it now and I'm always surprised um, by that time. It's almost like a blank in my mind, I, I have very definitive memories about the infusions themselves. Um, I have very vivid memories of not being able to eat. Like people did bring, did do a meal train for me. And I say, that's a great piece of advice. Like I put a cooler outside my door on the days I had treatment. You know, we were in New York city all day and I would come home and there'd be dinner waiting in the cooler and they made enough, you know, for Greg and I, and we didn't, so we didn't have to think, you know, it was just come home, have dinner. Um, and the, I was having issues with my iron. So people were making things that, you know, were iron rich. So it was, it was just, that was amazing. Um, but I, I, um, I don't really, I can't really tangibly think of feeling really, really horrible, except I was in a study for, um, Zometa, um, for women who had been through chemo to, they were trying to determine if it would help prevent bone loss. I do have osteoporosis, early onset osteoporosis, which is linked to my chemo um, and my early menopause. Um, but Zometa is one of those infusions that they give you for osteoporosis. 
Um, and they told me I would feel like I had the flu. And I thought, really? I just went through six months of chemo. Really? You think I'm going to feel bad? That drug knocked me literally on my ass. I, I, I crawled. I'm not kidding. I could not move my body. It was so achy, painful. And I, I remember crawling from my bed to the bathroom because I told Greg, no, you don't have to stay home. I'll be fine kind of thing. And I, that thing, so I never had that again. <laughs> they changed, they actually ended the study. They, they got it inconclusive, but I, um, yeah, I do remember that one being painful, but I, otherwise I don't know if I blocked it out um, or if it, for me, it was, I, w- I don't want to say a non-event, but it was, I think it was because I was like, okay, as you talked about earlier, you know, like with your mom, this is what I had to do and I got to get through it. Um, the drugs they have these days, the anti-emetics, you know, help so much. Um, I'm not really one to take drugs. I remember like the first or second week I told my oncologist I was having problems sleeping and she asked me, well, are you taking, um, she gave me something to help me calm. I can't remember the drug. And I was like, no, I don't want to take that. She's like, oh my gosh, like really just Kate. And I was like, I took it for the first time. And I was like, oh, okay. Well, I get it. <laughs> I need to take that edge off. Um, so sometimes listen to your doctor. <laughs> Those people that you decide to trust, listen to them. Um, but if that helps, but yeah, it's, I know it's very different for everyone. And I have so many, unfortunately, so many people in my life who've had very great experiences in getting through um, their treatments and others, um, not so much. And is it the drug cocktail? It definitely could be, you know, for sure. Um, But I'm also a big proponent of if you go into it, as we talked about earlier, like with a the attitude um, can make a difference, but I also think how, how it's about how you were before that, right? Um, if you're not kind to your body going into this, it's really hard for your body to be kind to you when it's dealing with that kind of stress. In Sandra Ingerman's book, The Book of Ceremony, she tells her readers, ceremony brings the sacred into ordinary life. For tens of thousands of years, ceremonies have been universally used to help communities navigate change and welcome new cycles. Performing ceremonies creates a bridge between the material world we live in and the world of the unseen, the divine, the power of the universe. I am fascinated by that world. We perform ceremonies to mark important events, and celebrations do the same thing. They mark the pleasure of an important event. Celebrations make it enjoyable. They make it social. I'm a celebrator. And like Alice on the Brady Bunch, I will make a cake for anything. To me, the littlest things are the most important things. Jane found those moments along her journey to celebrate. She's got a great one for how she embraced losing her hair. I would love to hear about the head shaving party because the one thing I remember seeing on social media was this beautiful henna tattoo on your entire head. Yeah. It was amazing. It was so sensational. It made me want to shave my hair off even more than it already is right now. It was just incredible. Tells that story. Yeah. Um, when I just funny when I knew I was going to lose my hair, um, I was like, oh, it can't be that big. I had fun. I was went and tried on wigs or whatever. But I said to my husband, eh, you know, I think let's have some fun with this. So the first thing I did is I dyed my hair jet black. You know, I thought, I'm that. Why in my life would I ever have the opportunity? And I realized I don't look good with jet black hair. So, <laughs> but I was like, oh, I'm going to try it. So and it, the best part is my hairdresser was right right in this with me. I used the same woman in New Jersey for over 20 years. I mean, when I come visit my mom, if I can sneak in an appointment with her, I'll still go see her. And so I talked to her about it. So first she dyed my hair jet black. And then I said, what do you think about coming to my house and shaving my head? You know, if I have, first I was like, I have my family. And we were just like, screw it, we'll have a party. Um, and it was one of the most humbling experiences I ever had, actually. So my hairdresser um did my head and then 
my husband stepped up and got his head shaved. And then like four of my best male friends did it. Like all my brothers, I have four brothers. Like my brothers got their head shaved. The guys I worked with, like I just was dumbstruck, dumbstruck. It was unbelievable to me that people were doing this. And people had t-shirts, you know, made and um, yeah, it was just being able to add a bit of levity and, and, and everyone came wearing wigs. That's the other thing. And it was hysterical. So, you know, from the Homer, the Marge Simpson wig to, you know, all different colors. It was great. It was, it was a really a way to add a bit of humor to what could have been a very traumatic experience. Um, but I actually, you look wonderful in that, with that short hair. I, um, I actually really like it. <laughs> Although I say now, like I'm never cutting my hair again because of that experience, but, um, it was summer. So it was very freeing. Um, and then having it that short just made it really easy. It was kind of a non-event when it fell out because it was so short anyway, you know, I just shaved it all the way down practically. How did the tattoo get on there? Oh, so the tattoo. So I was, um, going to, I think it was the first Coleman walk. So I had always done the Coleman walks with a coworker every year in the city. Um, we had done not only the 5k, but we did the three day walk several years in a row. Her mom was a breast cancer, um, survivor. I just never thought I'd be the you know, recipient of, of the Coleman, um, foundation. Um, so I thought, all right, well, I want to do something a little special here. So, um, it was my hairdresser who helped with that. And <laughs> put my tattoos on. So yeah, it's funny how many people thought that was a real tattoo. <laughs> I was like, oh no, I'm, I'm brave, but I am not that brave. <laughs> it was a, so yeah. And I, I, that picture, Greg took that at home and, and I was just like, um, it was a good reminder for me of, I feel like it helped me reclaim again, that, that law sense of loss or of control over my body. So like, yeah, okay. Cancer is going to take my hair, but I can have fun, right? I can have a party and, and shave it off and then, okay, well, if I'm going to be bald, well, I might as well be stylish. So <laughs> let's put a tattoo up there. It's new canvas. I have a personal issue around referring to myself as a survivor. And, um, and here it is, right? 15 years out. And, um, I don't, you know, when I, when I find out that someone's been diagnosed, I automatically want to let them know, but I've had, I've had a similar journey just so that we can connect and maybe I can help them. But I had always felt awkward around the way I tell them because I don't want to just come right out and say, Oh, I'm a survivor as well, because I feel like it separates me from, other people that had passed as a result of their journey because they survived like, so I'm a, but, but they're not, they're not a survivor because they've, you know, they've had to overcome so many more obstacles than I had had to overcome. So I don't feel comfortable with that term. Um, and I usually will just say, I had, a, I had my own journey through cancer and maybe I can help you. As a matter of fact, the name of this podcast, the name of my blog way back when, when it started, was going to be called Maybe I Can Help. Uh, because I just thought maybe I maybe I can help you. But then I thought, okay, that's a little bit too broad. Help with what? <laughs> and I was like, Oop, let's get it down to wellness. Um, what are your thoughts on that? And maybe you can help me to shift my way of thinking around it. I think maybe I'm sort of aligned with you where I say, oh, I've been on that journey or I've been there. Um, I'm trying to, like, I definitely use survivor like in October and when I'm doing my hashtags, things like that. Yeah. To me, I, I always think like all I hear in my head with survivor up to be very honest, the first thing that comes to my head is Gloria Gaynor. And <laughs> it is, and it's, it's not like, it's a weird word um, because it, has so many connotations like um and i guess maybe it's more so because i never thought about dying right it's like but I, it is something that i feel like 
for other, like when I'm at a Coleman Walker or whatever, it's so common. Well, how many years are you, you know, so are you, you're a survivor? How many years? You know, that's, that's the kind of the parlance in the language survivor. How many years, how many years? Um, so I've gotten comfortable with it. Um, but I, I guess it's figuring out where and how it's applicable. Um, because I, th- I think maybe a little bit like you, if I hear someone newly diagnosed and I'm trying to think about back to my own experience, like, did I want to hear survivor, even though I never really thought about dying? Like, I kind of, I, it's going to sound horrible. <laughs> I want to be like one of those people like, oh yeah, yeah, you're a survivor, you know, out there. And here I am, you know, 15 years later, I'm very public talking about it all the time. Um, but I do think it just brings up different connotations for people. Um, and to your point, I, and so many people I know who had a very different outcome of their battle, um, but they got through a battle, right? And so, and there are reasons that things went the way they did for some people. Um, and I don't want to take that away from them either. So, um, yeah, it's a weird, it's weird. I, I guess I really never thought about it. Um, I Am I proud to be one? Heck yeah. Um, do I think there are different ways that I refer to myself? Yeah. I, you know, that's not the first thing I think about when I think about, you know, being 15 years out, you know? But yeah, I guess I, I guess I really never thought about it. <laughs> okay, so now I gave you something to think about. During our chat, Jane gave us a lot of ways to help those who are already diagnosed with cancer, and I've asked her to give us a reminder of those ways as we wrap up our conversation. Don't believe everything you read online. Mm-hmm. I think it's trust trust your instincts. Um, look look to the experts, but trust your your instincts about interacting with those experts and make sure you align yourself with someone who makes you feel good about you. And then I think it's, and the, the one thing I think so many of us struggle with is don't be afraid to ask for help. Even if that help is, I don't need help. But as we were talking about earlier, I just need you here, right? It's like, I don't, I don't need help. Don't touch me. You know, don't talk to me, but I need you in the next room kind of thing. Like that, I think it's hard for people to say. Um, it's, it's that, for asking for help in, in a way that's not help, but it is help. Um, and, you know, it's hard to to be an advocate for yourself. Try your damnedest to do so. And for when you feel you just can't, because there will be days where you just can't, make sure you have that someone who's who can do that for you. Um, I felt it was really important to bring someone with me onto all my appointments because Literally in those first couple of weeks when we went to the doctor, all I heard was, you know, the teacher from from Peanuts. You know, wah, 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 wah. I, literally, like I, I say that all the time when I when I first got my diagnosis and Greg was with me and we walked in and she, the radiologist, you know, pulled up my mammogram and you know I had had the results of my biopsy with me and she said, "I'm sorry, it's positive." That's the last thing I heard. I do not recall to this day. What that woman said, to, and she gave us a whole list of instructions of the next things we were going to do. I heard none of it. Like Greg, like scared me, you know, out of the room and took me back to the car. But I really don't. I just, I completely blanked. And for a lot of those conversations, like when they started talking more in depth, I needed, I needed people with me, you know, get, get your, ad, like you said, you'll be surrounded by love. Use it. I can use it. You know, that's one of the ways to ask for help. Um, so, you know, if you have, you can bring people with you. Definitely. I encourage you to do it. Whatever your takeaway is from today's conversation, make that this week's shift work. If you're on your own journey, where can you find space for celebrations or ceremonies? If it's a loved one you're listening for, where can you help them to celebrate? Where in their journey can you help them create ceremony? My hope for you is that you've gleaned some tips to help yourself or a loved one make their journey through cancer a little bit smoother. If we can help just one person, that's enough. 
Be sure to check out Jane on her Instagram page at cjanegogogo. She welcomes any questions or concerns, so don't hesitate to DM her there. And thank you for listening. I'm so honored that you've not just tuned in, but that you've stayed to the end. If you haven't already subscribed to this podcast, I'm asking that you take a moment to do so so that you don't miss another episode. And while you're there, you can rate and review the show because your reviews are super helpful for me and my work. Use your reviews as an opportunity to tell me what else you'd like to learn more about. You can even DM me on my Instagram at Jen Caputo and let me know what else you'd like me to chat about. Enjoy your day. Enjoy your night. Make it a good one. You are in control. And remember, it's not about being perfect. It's about being easy with the practice. Thank you.